Amen. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for you giving us the privilege to know you, to serve you, to have a relationship with you, Lord, that we build our lives upon the cornerstone of our faith, which is Christ Jesus. And Lord, it is upon that rock that we stand. And we're grateful, God, forever grateful that you are faithful and that you cannot be moved. Lord, we pray all of these things in the wonderful and precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. All right, guys. If you have a copy of God's Word this morning, go ahead and start making your way to Revelation chapter 8. We're going we're gonna to be able to finish this chapter uh, today. So excited about our message today. Let me get my, my notes up here as you're making your way to Revelation 8. We uh, spent a lot of time the last couple of weeks looking at Revelation 7 and this Great multitude in heaven, specifically last week, that uh, in my estimation just really gives us an amazing glimpse and a picture of the full number of God's people surrounding the throne, preparing the way for King Jesus to return in power and glory where he will be our God and we will be his people and he will wipe every tear away from our eyes. As I shared with you last week, you know, God knew what he was doing when he gave John the, the prophecy in the book of Revelation because with all of the heavy, sobering difficult uh, things that John would be seeing and experiencing and, and writing down and, and trying to process and take all of this in. The Lord n needed to give him a chapter like chapter 7. And really, I think it was very good for us to be reminded how the story ends, right? Like for God's people, for those of us who are saved by grace through faith and we are part of this great multitude of this host of heaven and that we are promised to participate with all of God's covenant people to inherit the kingdom and that's what Revelation chapter 7 is all about, is reminding us that the story ends on a good note, that when Jesus returns this second time, he's coming to save his people and establish his kingdom and destroy all of his enemies. And, and it will be an amazing reality for us to behold, and there will be no more death. And that's what Revelation 7 is all about. It's really a picture of, again, as I said, the end. And so uh, John needed that. We needed that because now uh, we get to jump right back into the flow of things. And as we look at the tearing of the seventh seal this morning, which leads us to the unraveling of the scroll that's going to give us now more details and more information about the total um, uh, divine acts of judgment that God will pour out on the earth during the great tribulation leading up to the glorious return of Jesus Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to jump into Revelation chapter 8 this morning and try to cover the entire chapter and so we'll break this down as we go we should be able to cover the first four trumpet judgments this morning and so um, let's just go ahead and jump right in so we're going to be looking at the seventh seal here in revelation chapter eight and so let me just read verse one it says and when the lamb opened the seventh seal there was silence in heaven for about half an hour okay now, just, just again, to, to make sure we understand, or at least to, to help you understand how I'm looking at the book of Revelation, how I'm unpacking and interpreting the book. Remember, the seals 
All right, let me back up. How many scrolls are there? One scroll. What's contained on the scroll? The book, right? The, the prophecy of this book is, is contained on this scroll. It is the, the detailed account that uh, is given to John uh, and of the end of the age, of the great tribulation, the return of Jesus Christ, right? So there's one scroll, okay? So the seals have the scroll, and that, that's, a, that's the best picture that I can give you of what I've envisioned this scroll looking like. It's written on the front and the back. And as you tear each seal, it unravels a portion of the scroll, and you, you can't have access to the entire scroll until the seventh seal is torn. And so that's, there, there's seven seals. They all have to do with unraveling or unveiling the scroll and the details that are in the scroll, and that's what we have here in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. Now let me say something real quick just to kind of help you guys too as well. Be careful and be leery about chapter breaks in your Bible. Uh, chapter breaks are not inspired, okay? They were put in much later, and I'm thankful for chapter breaks, and I'm thankful for addresses and verses. And so, as, you know, if we say, you know, Romans 5.12, then you can go to Romans 5.12 and look it up. And so it helps with our communication and accessing Scripture and all that kind of stuff. But who inserted these chapter breaks? Men did. Scribes did. Scholars did. These are people that, you know, they did their best to try to divide the Scriptures up into what they thought were good time, pieces and, and parts of the, of the story to break and to, and to cut up. But many times chapter breaks are terrible. They, they put them in the worst possible place because you read the end of a chapter and think that's the end of the story or the end of the context. And then you pick up in the next chapter and it's supposed to be still giving you the same context of what you were reading. And then we separate those two things and many times we miss the greater context of the, of the, the story and the, the scripture itself. So again, I think chapter 8 may be one of those situations where I don't know if this is the best place for... A chapter break, but I'm just going to throw that out there, especially in this book, the book of Revelation. Just be careful. Don't let your chapter breaks determine how you interpret the book, okay? Just, just a little bit of side note there, okay? So, so here we have the seventh seal, and there's this thing about silence in heaven. And, you know, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence. This is one of those things in the book of Revelation that just, just kind of perplexes me. Because if there's anything... In the book of Revelation that we read, there's not silence, right? right? I mean, there's shouting and there's singing and there's judgments and there's calamities and distress and all of this tribulation and all the, the saints are crying out, how long will we avenge our blood? And the angels are singing and there's all this. I mean, there's just this unbelievable amount of just noise, just consistent noise that's happening in this entire book, really throughout the entire book, except right here. And I just, it just, it bothers, it's one of those little things that I'm that kind of a personality where I gotta, I gotta try to track this down. I gotta try to figure this thing out. And I don't, I can't tell you this morning that I have this part figured out, but I'm gonna give you the best interpretation that I see as to what is happening here when the seventh seal is torn. Remember, what does the seventh seal do? All it does is open up access to the entire scroll. So now that the seventh seal is torn, we can go deeper and read more which is basically chapters 8 through 22 is what I think is provided at the tearing of the seventh seal. We get to get more access to this end-time prophecy, right? And so what does it mean by this silence in heaven? Well, as I was doing some of my um, you know, research and trying to, to dig in a little bit, I began to ask myself, what is going on here? Why is there <clears throat> silence in heaven? And I'll just give you my best, here's my best guess right here. I feel like this is the 
the, the time, and again, you even think about half an hour, like, is there time in heaven? You know, like, apparently so. Apparently they have some understanding of how long half an hour is in heaven. I don't know what that looks like. I don't think there's clocks. Maybe there is. Who knows? But according to John, he knew or felt like it last, this silence lasted how long? Half an hour, right? 30 minutes, okay? So there's this silence in heaven, the tearing of the seventh seal, and I think basically what's happening here, one thing that could be in view here, is that it is, since there is so much in the book of Revelation about rejoicing and singing and noise and shouting and all of these things, that this is the moment when, when all of the hosts of heaven collectively hold their what? Hold their breath. It's like everything is just still before the Lord. And it's almost like this sobering reality that when there's angels and, and, and living creatures that are constantly around the throne singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and this non-day and night, it never stops, it never stops, it stops. And I think there's significance to that. I think there's something significant to the fact that right here in Revelation chapter 8, it stops. Nobody opens their mouth. No, everyone stands still. You know what Psalm 46 says? Be what? Be still and know that I am God. So I began to look at some of the scriptures, as I always do. I try to look at the Old Testament. And I began to look at this word silent, you know. And so this is where I went. And again, everybody looks at these things differently. But this is where I went when I started thinking about what does this really mean that there was silence in heaven. So I think all of heaven is collectively holding their breath. It's the calm before the, before the storm, right? Now look at all the, the Old Testament prophets and how the Lord himself talked about silence. Isaiah 65. These are, he's talking about the day of the Lord, day of judgment. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me. I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay it into their lap. You see, right now, there are scoffers and mockers all throughout the earth and really have always been this way. But Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3 that in the last days it will be even worse and there will be people who mock us and scoff us because they say, where is the coming of the one that you've said has been coming? All the time, where's the return of Jesus? You've been telling us that Jesus is going to return for all these years, for generations and generations. Where is he? Where is this Jesus? Ha ha. Scoffing us and mocking us, right? Presuming upon God's grace, thinking that you know they're not going to actually have to stand before the judgment of the Lord. And there is coming a day when there will be silence in heaven for just long enough for everybody to collectively hold their breath and understand, okay, this is the day that the Lord will <clears throat> repay. He will no longer keep what? He's not going to keep silent any longer. Habakkuk 2. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Zephaniah 1. Be silent before the Lord God for the day of the Lord is near. He's prepared a sacrifice. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and kings and all who array themselves in foreign attire. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. You see all the connections here? You see the Lord is in his temple. He is, he is there in the most holy of holy places in the universe. And all of heaven is silent before him. And it's like he is preparing to arouse, to rouse himself from his holy dwelling. Amen. He's about to get up and come down. And that's what I think is happening here in Revelation chapter 8. Now look at what it says in Psalm 50, last one. The mighty one, 
God the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may what? Judge his people. Guys, this is about judgment. This is about judgment. Now, I've talked to you a little bit about how the book of Revelation, you've got to have a really good understanding about the temple and the tabernacle and the different elements and the, the layout of the tabernacle. Because right here, this is an old picture of the, of the tabernacle where you have uh, the bronze altar, you have the, the labor where the priest would wash before they entered into the holy place, and then they had their showbread and the lampstand and the altar of incense, and then there was the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. And when you're reading the book of Revelation, all of the imagery and symbolism is really telling us about the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple. Because again, everything in heaven has been, is a, everything on earth is a copy and a shadow of that which has already been uh, made in heaven. And so what is this idea about the altar of incense? And it's a connection to the prayers of the saints. So look real quick, uh, Revelation 8 2. So, so we kind of have the silence in heaven deal, right? I think that's one of those things that maybe stands alone. I don't know where it fits, whether it's supposed to be with chapter 7 or you know, whether it's supposed to be right here. But I think this is picking up a new thought now. And it says, and then I saw, so his, his, his vision shifts to these other angels who are given the trumpets, right? He says, there were angels who had seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. All right. Now, here's something very interesting I want us to pick up on. Okay. Don't miss this. The prayers of the saints during the great tribulation. Okay. These are this smoke that's rising up to God in heaven is representative of incense that was burning. So, in the temple, in the tabernacle, the priests were commanded to keep incense burning how long? All the time. Incense was continually supposed to be rising up in the holy place. And when the high priest, we'll see in just a minute, went into the Holy of Holies once a year for the Day of Atonement, he had to make sure that he had incense burning in order to protect himself from the glory of God. If he didn't do this just according to the way that God prescribed it to him, what would happen to the high priest? He would die. Okay, you can't just enter into God's presence on your own terms. You would, he would actually physically die. Okay, so see this picture as the prayers of the saints that are being offered up during the time, worst time in human history. All of God's people are crying out to the Lord during this great tribulation. And it will be the, this is what will be the primary catalyst that moves God to release his judgments on the earth. You know, when, can I summarize that for you? Your prayers matter. Our prayers matter. And you know what? There's no such thing as an unanswered prayer. Sometimes God answers yes. Sometimes he answers no. And sometimes he says what? Wait. But there's no, no such thing as an unanswered prayer. He either answers yes, no, or he may say wait. But he's answering your prayer according to his good will and purposes and his perfect what? Timing, right? But this is a picture here that the prayers of God's people is really rising up before the Lord. And it is his motivation is kind of driving him, is compelling him to finally bring justice and release his judgments upon the earth. And so I want you to see the, the benefit or the, not the benefit, but the essential nature of our prayers, guys, during this time of great tribulation. You know what's also interesting about our prayers is that we're going to see here in a minute that the exodus and the plagues of Egypt are very similar to the tr trumpet judgments 
and the bowl judgments for that matter. But you remember, when did God finally act for the people of Israel in Egypt? It's when he heard their what? He heard their groaning. He heard their prayer. Like it got to the point where the people of Israel who were in bondage there in Egypt, they were there in a, in a land not their own for 400 years. They went in, into bondage as slaves. And finally it reached a point where they were crying out to God so much that he said, I'm going to go and act on their behalf. I had com- he had compassion for his people. And he went and acted on, on behalf of his people by pouring out plagues on Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and showing his superiority over the gods of Egypt, right? It's the very same thing that they see that's happening here. It will be during this time of great tribulation as God's people are being su- are suffering and we're being persecuted for Jesus' namesake and that we begin to cry out again as the saints in heaven are crying out before the altar, how long, O Lord, until you avenge the blood of our, uh, of our enemies and you avenge the blood of your saints? And then at the same time, we'll be praying to him from here on the earth saying, O Lord, how long until you come and finally save us? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? Save us now. Now, O Lord, it will be that deep desire and that cry in our hearts of prayer that I believe really moves the Lord to finally bring out his judgment in the last days. So what is this, what is this thing all about? I think, we, again, i, I got to spend a little time here because we're Old Testament illiterate for the most part. You know, how many, how many of you have been through a, 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 a verse-by-verse study of the book of Leviticus? A couple of you. But you just don't hear that, you know, on the, on the sign out front. You know, come 23 weeks of Leviticus. Come, you know, learn the Bible, right? I mean, that's, that just get, doesn't get very many people's attention. The book of Leviticus, in my opinion, is one of the most critical books in all the Bible. And it's in the book of Leviticus that we learn about the Day of Atonement. We learn about all the feasts of Israel in the book of Leviticus, but specifically about the most holy day on the calendar To the people of Israel was Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And when we see a picture like we see in heaven, where an angel takes a golden what? Censer. He takes the coals from the altar. Now, the the brazen altar is where sacrifices were made. And he was to take some of the hot coals and put it in this golden censer where there's incense in the censer. And when you start burning incense, it releases what? Smoke, right? An aroma of smoke. And he's to take this censer into the Holy of Holies with him once a year. If he did not do everything according and exactly prescribed by the word of God, he was running the risk of dying. That's how serious it was. Don't come and approach God on your own terms. You've got to do it his way. Well, this is what's happening in heaven as we also see what was happening in, in, uh, on earth in the book of Leviticus. It says here in Leviticus 16, the high priest will take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he will bring it inside the veil, inside the Holy of Holies, and he will put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. Okay, so this is a picture. It, again, when you read the book of Revelation, it's giving you images and symbols and, and, and language that should get you to look at a different place in Scripture. Well, this is where it immediately took me, back to Leviticus chapter 16. Now, when you look at Hebrews chapter 9, it's fascinating, talking of Jesus. Listen to this. I'm going to back up to verse 23. It's worth reading. It says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So we have a faithful high priest who stands before God as our intercessor and our advocate. He is, as Chris just said during baptism, he has ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, and he is our advocate, right? He's our faithful high priest. Thank God, praise God, hallelujah, hallelujah. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest had to enter into the Holy of Holies every single year to offer blood that was not his own. But it says Jesus is, a, again, he's a greater sacrifice because he only had to die what? One time, once for the sins of all. It says he, had to, he did not have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Now look at what it says in Hebrews 9. Fascinating. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes what? Comes the judgment. We've quoted that all the time. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, listen, he will appear a second time. Okay? But not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, what is this business that when Jesus comes a second time, he's not going to deal with sin? Well, how did he deal with sin the first time? He laid his life down. He died on a cross. This is saying he's not going to come the second time humble and meek and mild like the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world and to lay his life down on the cross. He's not coming the second time to deal with sin. He's coming to what? Save his people as the conquering king and the lion of the tribe of Judah, roaring like a mighty lion. Right? That's what this is talking about. I think this scene in heaven is giving us a picture of Jesus entering into the Holy of Holies, presenting himself before the Lord, preparing himself to go and save his people. That's what's happening right here in my estimation. Because all of this imagery and this language has everything to do with judgment and God's vengeance, repaying evil, uh, repaying the wicked for what they deserve. Again, Hebrews 10, I, I think this is important, guys. Look at verse 37. For Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and have preserved their souls. Guys, when this day comes, the Lord is telling us there will be many. Remember, remember what we read in the sixth field? What are the kings of the earth and the slave and free and the rulers and the rich and the poor? What are they trying to do? hide in the caves. They're shrinking back. They're, they're terrified of the day of the Lord as Jesus comes in all of his power and glory. He says, we won't be like that. We don't have to fear or be afraid, so we should not shrink back because we are saved by faith, and we look up, and we receive and anticipate and welcome the return of the Lord Jesus Christ because that's the day of our what? Our, our, our salvation, our redemption. Okay, and so that's what this is all talking about. Now, look, let's look real quick about what does it mean about the burning coals from the altar. Now, if you look at uh, Revelation 8, look at what happens. So, again, this is a picture of the Day of Atonement. It's, it's a heavenly scene. It says, The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So what's this deal about burning coals? Okay, so remember, it's the prayers of the saints that move God to action. God is 
feeling compassion for his people, so he's releasing his judgments upon the earth. And there's another passage in Ezekiel 10 that tells us the very same thing. Again, all, Ezekiel is critical to understanding Revelation. Look at what it says in Ezekiel 10 too. He said to a man clothed in linen, Go among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. This is the throne room of God. Fill your hands with what? Burning coals from the, between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. So it's a, it's a picture of divine judgment, right? Psalm 140. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into miry pits, no more to rise. And then Romans 2 talks about how God has been storing up wrath. Now, this is a fascinating concept. Look at what it says. Because of your hand of impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, I want you all to think about this for a second. Everybody in this room, you're making deposits right now. Every choice and action that you make, every thought that you think, every attitude of your heart, every deed that you do, you're making a deposit where? In heaven. You're either making a deposit and storing up wrath that's going to come back on your what? On your head one day. Or you're storing up treasure in heaven to be your great what? Reward for the kingdom. And I just want you to think about that for just a second. Like how sobering it is for us. Now as believers, we're, we're saved. We're, 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 we're not destined for God's wrath in any form, shape, or fashion. But we will be rewarded according to what we do in this life, right? So everything that we do as believers, we're still storing up reward. And some of us will suffer great loss in the kingdom. The Bible talks about that. Some of us will have great reward and some of us will enter the kingdom just by, as through fire, right? Just by the skin of our teeth. And we will not have as much reward in the kingdom. But there are others who are living a life of rebellion right now who have rejected God. What are they storing up for themselves? They're storing up wrath. They're making deposits every day. Another deposit. Another deposit. One day God's going to call that account. And he's going to bring it back upon them. Amen. That's what this whole business is about. It's talking about the day of God's vengeance. Look at what it says in Romans 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, this, I never understood this until I read this passage today. I never understood what he was talking about. Look at what it says. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, what? Feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, man, this is great. You're going to heap burning coals on his head. I always, I always read that. I'm like, what in the world is he talking about? Like, you want to feed your enemy and give him something to drink and then pour burning coals on his head? Like, that didn't, didn't make a whole lot of sense, right? No, no, no. Do you understand what he's saying? We never avenge ourselves. We don't repay evil with evil, but we overcome evil with good. And then by doing so, those people who have continually persisted in willful rebellion against the Lord in the end will receive burning what? Coals. And I, I take that to be literal. Literal, fiery, judgment, burning coals will be poured out upon their head because they are the ones who had rejected the Lord. That's what this whole passage is all about. So as this angel is getting burning coals from the altar, and that the altar is where the, the saints of the Lord are crying out, what? Oh Lord, how long until you avenge the blood of the righteous? And finally, there is burning coals thrown onto the what? Onto the earth, which is the day of God's judgment. Amen. 
the day of God's judgment. I could go on and on about this, but I do want to pull one more connection here to this passage. So from this point on in the book of Revelation, you're going to see this repeated, okay? It says, there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. You're going to see this language repeated three or four different times. And most of the time it's connected to the seventh seal, seventh trumpet, seventh bowl events. Okay? That language is there for a reason. It's trying to get, bring our attention to the first time that happened in history. When there was peals of thunder, great rumblings, voices from heaven, lightning, fire, and an earthquake. That happened the first time on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. Look at what it says. On the morning of the third day, there were what? Thunders and lightnings, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. So Moses brought the people out to meet God. So they took their stand at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it. He came down in fire. The smoke of it went up in the, like a smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain what? Trembled. There was an earthquake. So there was rumblings, and there was lightning, and there was fire, and there was uh, voices from heaven, and there was this great earthquake. So this happened on Mount Sinai at, during the Exodus. And it says, as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And he came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And so, guys... Again, this language is meant to provoke us to think about the first time God came down. It's going to be very similar to the what? The second time, the second time God Amen. comes down. Okay? For as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side or the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. All right. So that kind of gives us a little bit of an introduction here to the trumpets. So my goal here the rest of the time that we have is I want to cover the first four trumpet judgments today. And I just want to remind you again, when we read the trumpet judgments, I do not read these that these are in succession after the seals. I don't read it that way. The seals, again, give us the big picture. The seals are telling us the, the overall big picture story of everything that's going to happen leading up to the day that Jesus returns. So the trumpets have to fit somewhere within the what? within the seals. And I think it's very clear that that's what's happening. Okay, so as we look at these trumpet judgments, remember, now that the seventh seal has been broken and the scroll has been unraveled, now we can read the full prophecy. Now we can have access to the whole scroll. And that's where we start getting details behind what was happening in the seal judgments. Okay, so let's look at the trumpet judgments. Let me give you a couple of biblical purposes for trumpets. If you if you do a study about trumpets in the Bible, man, they are all throughout the Bible for many different purposes. Let me give you five main purposes that trumpets are. Now, when I say trumpet, don't think about the little, you know, brass instrument that your kid that's probably laying up in your attic right now that your son never finished band, right, playing on the trumpet. I think my dad, we just cleaned out my dad's apartment and he has a trumpet from like 1975 that he won't get rid of. And for some reason, he has to hold on to that stuff. But but don't think about a trumpet necessarily like that. Think about a ram's what? A ram's horn. The shofar is a better representation of what we're saying when we say trumpet. But it can, as you'll see in a minute, it can mean a metal silver trumpet. We'll see that in a second. But most of the time when the scriptures speak of the trumpet of God, it's talking about the shofar, okay, the ram's horn. 
What was the ram's horn? What was the trumpet used for in Scripture? Well, it was used to sound an alarm or give a what? A warning. It was used in war. When you're getting ready to declare a battle cry, you blew the trumpets, everybody knew that's the signal, it's time to go fight. It was also used to gather God's people. So in the camp of Israel, when you heard the certain trumpet blast, people were called to gather together, and you heard other trumpet blasts, and they, were, they, were, they knew that it was time to go, to, to set out and break camp. It was also used to announce the coronation of a king, or the procession of the king, and it was used to declare the appointed feast. Of Israel. So let me give you a thing about the, the kind of the background or, or, or the overall picture of trumpets in the Bible. The trumpet judgments like the plagues in Egypt, and that's important, they're very parallel, they're very closely parallel to the plagues in Egypt. They serve both as a declaration of war against the wicked, but this is what's important, but they're also warning signs designed to call the entire world back to what? Repentance. Don't miss this. This is so critical. So they're warning signs. Yeah, hey, the Lord's declaring war against the wicked, against the beast and his evil empire. But at the same time, he's giving the, the world an opportunity to what? To repent. Very critical that we understand that. Ezekiel 33. The word of the Lord came to me, said, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the what? Blows the trumpet and warns the people. If anyone hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take that warning, the sword will come and take him away. His blood shall be upon his what? His own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet. He did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. You get it? But, listen to this, we are watchmen, by the way. We are watchmen today. If the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, the sword will come and take any one of them, and that person is taken away in his own sin. In other words, that person is still responsible for their own sin, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. You see, guys, we have good news we, have, we know how the story ends. We know how it, is, it has been written. We know how all these things were, are going to transpire. We know that tomorrow's not promised. We know that heaven is real and hell is real. We know that salvation is only by Jesus Christ through faith in him alone. We know that, that eternity is forever. We know that all these things are significant and all these things are matter. All these things matter. But if we're not sounding the alarm, in some way we will be held what? Responsible. There will be, in some way, it doesn't mean that we're lost or that we lose our salvation. It just means we will be held accountable for the times that we remain silent and we did not warn the world around us, whether it be friends or neighbors or people in our community or, or, or you know, whatever, God forbid, your Facebook friends, whatever. Whatever platform that you have, when we remain silent and we do not sound the alarm, we will be held responsible, guys. Very important. Here's a couple more passages about trumpets. Uh, this is Numbers 10. You shall sound an alarm with the trumpets so that you may be remembered before the Lord and, he will be, and you will be saved from your enemies. Um, it talks about how you will blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and at your appointed feast at the beginning of the month and your appointed feast. We'll get more into that later. Obviously, we have Joshua in the Battle of Jericho. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because when we get to the seventh trumpet... 
I'm going to revisit this a little bit more, but remember the battle cry in, in the battle for Jericho? The priest sounded the what? Sounded the trumpets. He said, when you hear the trumpets, you know that the city is ours and you may take, make his way into the city and the walls of the city came down. We know that in Joshua 6. Here it is in uh, Numbers 10 about summoning the congregation. Moses was commanded to make two special trumpets for breaking camp and gathering God's people. Again, that's going to be later in the seventh trumpet. Uh, they blew the trumpet and when they coronated King Solomon, long live the king. And then the Feast of Trumpets, uh, again, we'll get into more of that later. The Day of Shouting, Yom Teruah, very interesting uh, in Leviticus 23 that we also have the Feast of Trumpets. And all those things will be, it, we'll, we'll, di we'll dig into those more in detail later on down the road when we get to the seventh trumpet. All right, so let's look at the first four trumpets. Now look, guys, these are pretty self-explanatory, and a lot of this stuff I've already covered to some extent. So, you know, this may go a little bit faster than normal but let's do our very best to break down the four trumpets, okay? The first trumpet judgment, as the angels begin to blow, is that there a third of the vegetation on the earth is burned, okay? So the first trumpet judgment represents fire coming down from heaven upon the vegetation of the earth. The seven angels had the seven trumpets. They prepared to blow. And the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire Mixed with blood. I don't know what it means that there's blood coming down. I, I, don't, I don't know what that is, guys, but it, it sounds pretty, pretty gory. Um, that's pretty bizarre to me, if you ask me. But anyway, there's hail and fire mixed with blood. Okay, so this is, this is awful. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned, and a third of the trees were burned, and a third of the green grass was burned up. Okay, again, what do we see in the fourth seal? I mean, in the third seal? Famine. Famine throughout the whole what? Okay, if you burn a third of the trees and a third of the pasture lands and your orchards and your fruit farms and all that stuff and your crops begin to burn, what do you think it's going to cause? It's going to cause a famine, right? And so you can see, you can picture wildfires. That's an aerial view of, of Australia um, when they have, their, they have severe wildfires in Australia, also out in California. I mean, guys, we can't even imagine what this is going to be. But here's the thing. When it says a third of the earth, this is, this is the main thing you need to take away from that. It means that it's not total. In other words, these trumpet judgments, they're bad, but they're not completely devastating. Why? Because God is still trying to give mankind a chance to, to repent. Y'all with me? This isn't like the whole world just explodes and catches fire and we all burn up. No, this is a, a specific, strategic, deliberate burning of a third of the earth, which is significant. And it will affect us all in some way, but the Lord doesn't do it totally because he's still giving people a chance to repent, okay? Um, let me go to Joel 1. Look at this. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off from our eyes, gladness and joy from the house of God? The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down and their grain is dried up. Why? Why is there, why is there famine? How the beasts groan, the cattle wander aimlessly because there's no pasture for them. Why is there no pasture for the animals to feed? Oh, probably because it says, you, To you, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and a flame has burned up all the what? Trees of the field. Same thing. Okay, so there will be a reason. There will be repercussions for this type of judgment. Ezekiel 20 says the same thing. It shall devour, fire shall devour every green tree and every dry tree, a blazing flame shall not be quenched. And of course, Sodom and Gomorrah probably gives us 
the most complete picture of what this kind of would look like, right? I mean, when hail and fire and blood and brimstone and sulfur is falling from heaven and it just catches, I mean, it, it's just going to be awful, right? It's going to be tough, tough judgments. And so that gives us a little bit of an indication of what it's going to be like. All right, second trumpet. A third of the sea turned to blood. Okay, so the second tr tr trumpet judgment represents judgment by turning the seas to blood. You see it there. Something like a great mountain burning with fire, again, was thrown into the sea, and somehow it turns the sea to blood. I don't know if that's because the creatures in the sea turn to blood or if this great mountain has some type of you know, fire and blood or coming out of heaven anyway. I don't know how it's all going to go down, guys. But all I know is that it kills a third of the living sea creatures and a third of the ships were destroyed. Okay? Look at Psalm 46. Remember this? I, I quoted it earlier. Be still and know that I am God. Look at what it says. God is our refuge and strength, very, has, very present help in our time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, and though the what? Mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. There's a mountain in the second tr trumpet judgment that is thrown into the heart of the sea. You see, we'll be quoting Psalm 46... During these trumpet judgments, this has been spiritualized for generations, but this will be a real reality for God's people. Even though we see a mountain actually going into the heart of the sea, causing massive devastation and tsunamis and killing a third of the sea life, we will not be afraid. Amen. Right? We will not be moved. We will not fear. These are practical things, guys. It says the earth will be in distress and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and of the waves. So obviously if a mountain hits the sea, it's going to cause massive devastations and tsunami. We see this all the way back in the book of Exodus. The very first judgment in the plagues of Egypt was that Moses, through the power of God, turned the waters to what? Turned the waters to blood. Okay, again, these are, these are, this is meant to invoke a connection there. We also know... As I shared with you earlier, the two witnesses will be the ones, God's agents on the earth, who are calling down these judgments. Just like Moses and Aaron stood before Pharaoh and said, Okay, Pharaoh, if you're not going to let our people go, then God's about to send another plague on your land. And guess what happened? It happened just as they said it would. The two witnesses will be doing the same thing. They'll be standing before the beast, the Antichrist, and saying, Okay, if you will not let our people go, who have you taken into captivity, God's about to throw a mountain into the sea and a third of your ships are going to be destroyed. I'm not letting your people go. Okay, here we go. And so it is the two witnesses who have this authority over three and a half years to call down these judgments. Look at what it says in Revelation 11. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. They have the power over the waters to turn them into what? That's, that's what's happening. The two witnesses are calling down the judgments and the waters turn to Blood, okay? That's how we have to make all of these connections. And then, of course, we'll get to the bold judgments later when all of the waters turn to blood. So it's a it gets progressively what? Progressively worse. We understand that, okay? The third trumpet judgment is called Wormwood. It says the third trumpet represents judgment by turning the fresh water into bitter poison. What does this mean? I don't know, Okay? What is wormwood? This is what's interesting, is that it is a star. Remember, we talked about how the stars falling from heaven mean both asteroids, maybe comets, or some type of meteor or something like that, but they also represent supernatural angelic beings. Stars can be what? Fallen angels. 
So this star is given a name. So does that mean there's a fallen angel named Wormwood who's connected with this catastrophic event? Maybe so. I don't know. Probably so. It's usually both and. Okay? But all I know is that when Wormwood comes, a third of the water, so the sea, a third of the sea is already blood, now a third of the fresh water, springs and rivers, they turn bitter into poison. And it says many people have died because of the poison. Um, there's so many things I wish I could get into here. I'm not going to spend much time. Jeremiah 8, uh, it says, The Lord our God has doomed us to perish. He's given us poisoned water to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. That's the same word, uh, wormwood. Revelation, uh, excuse me, Jeremiah 8, they come and devour the land and all that fills it. Um, it's talking about the, I'll have to get into that later. Um, let me see if I, Jeremiah 23, behold, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poison water to drink. Again, these are judgments that God is doing. Again, not to just kill everybody, but to get our attention and hopefully bring people to repentance. That's the main thing. Um, I could go on and on with all this, guys. Jeremiah 23 is, is amazing. Now, I do want to bring one, uh, this is just one of those little things because I'm weird. Apophis, anybody know anything about this? Um, NASA has tracked this meteor. It's 1,500 feet in diameter. It's a massive meteor. They're tracking it for years, and it's, and it's orbiting our solar system. And they, they believe that on Friday the 13th, April 13th, 2029, just right down the road, that Apophis will either make contact with the Earth or make such a close pass to the Earth that it will you know, do some really some damage. It could knock out all of our satellites. It could maybe hit the moon. Maybe it could hit the earth, whatever it may be. Um, you know, they think this, and they can't track this thing precisely, but it's coming. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to come very, very closer than anything that's ever come before to the earth. And it is significant in its size. If it hit the earth, it would make an impact of 1,000 megatons of TNT. That's 100,000 times more than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. So it just so happens that they named this meteor the god of chaos, Apophis. I don't know, something to keep your eyes on. Now, fourth trumpet judgment, a third of the moon, the sun, moon, and stars will be darkened. So here's my, here's my theory. Let's say Apophis hits the earth. Let's say Wormwood impacts the earth with 100,000 times the power of Hiroshima. What do you think that might do to the, do the Earth's rotation on its axis? Probably going to mess it up, right? Could even knock the Earth out of orbit. Even if it's just a little bit, the Earth starts to sway and stagger and reel. It could speed up the Earth's rotation or slow it down. That's what this is all about. The fourth trumpet represents the judgment that disrupts the natural course of the Earth in its orbit, and it will knock the Earth off of its Axis. Okay, so this is a significant event. I think it could have something to do with these, with the impact of some of these judgment, uh, prior trumpet judgments, and that's what it means when it says that a third of their light, the sun, moon, and stars, will be darkened. Because I can't see any other way that that, that makes any sense. I mean, you can't just blot out a third of the sky where you can't see it. So it has to be something to do with the natural course of time. So if the rotation of the Earth on its axis has changed. We don't have 24-hour days anymore. It would be like living up north in Alaska. It's daylight for two hours and dark for 22. And then the next day it's daylight for 10 hours and dark for, for 12 or whatever. I don't know how it's all going to shake out. 
But those are things that I think we will experience during the last days. Do you, do you really want to freak people out? Take away the, what, what's the one thing we can be sure of when we, when we wake up in the morning? Sun's going to come up, right? You really want to freak people out? Take that away. Oh, wait a minute. You mean the sun's not going to come up like it's supposed to? What is going Everybody will know something's what? Something's going on. This is no ordinary event. This is the end. This is Armageddon. This is the apocalypse, whatever, which gives us the wonderful opportunity to step right in and say what? I can tell you exactly what's happening. It has been written. Let me tell you about my Jesus. You still have a chance to what? Repent. That's what this is all about, guys. I'm not going to go into all this with a... Revelation, Daniel, there's so much good stuff, guys. Again, I, I always have way too much that I can share. Um, let, me, let me bring this up from Isaiah. The, moon, the, the sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not give its light. I, I shared a lot of this during the sixth seal. Look at what it says in verse 13 of Isaiah. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. That's, that's one instance, I think. The earth is going to be shaken so bad it's going to be shaken out of its place. In Isaiah 24, it says that um, the windows of heaven will be opened and the foundations of the earth will tremble. Look at what it says. The earth is broken. It's split apart. It is violently shaken. It staggers like a what? Drunken man. It sways like a hut. Something's going to knock the earth off its axis. It's going to be different. Um, and so the, the only other Old Testament, as I, as I wrap this thing up, the only other Old Testament pattern that we have for some of these very same judgments is the day that the sun stood still. How many of you have ever been curious about Joshua and the day the sun stood still? How, how did that happen? We, we wonder about that. There's a lot of good theories out there. I can't tell you the mechanics of all of it, but something supernatural happened. So let's finish here as we wrap up this message about the trumpet judgments. So all the way back to Joshua, who shared the name Yeshua? Jesus. So he's, he's a picture, he's a type of Jesus Christ, okay? He led his people as the conquering warrior into the promised land. It says, Joshua went up from Gilgal, Gilgal, and he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. Now, these are the Amorite kings. There were five Amorite kings who, who came together in an alliance to attack the Gibeonites in order to bring uh, Joshua into war against them, okay? And these were giants, by the way. They're Amorites. They were giants. If you, if you know anything about giants living in the land in those days. So these were not ordinary people. And it says in Joshua 10... As, they, as these giant kings, these Amorites, fled before Israel, look at what it says. While they were going down, they were trying to get out of, out of Dodge, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Ezekiel, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel were killed with, than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Let me paint the picture for you. Here comes Joshua and all the Israelites. They're going to fight giant kings who have made an alliance together. They have probably no chance to beat these guys. But the Lord says, go fight them because I'm going to fight for you. Okay? As they're there preparing to fight the giant kings, the Lord begins to rain down what? 
hailstones. Now, let me just back up. For, they're there together. How many Israelites was crushed with a hailstone? Oh, you mean God can actually put a hailstone where he wants it? I think so. You see, we freak out in the, in, the, in the book of Revelation. We say, how can God's people be on the earth when all this bad stuff is happening? Oh, because he can bring down hailstones on an army and crush the enemies while saving and protecting his people at the very same It's easy, guys. It's not a big thing for God to do. And he did it. He's done it. He did it in Egypt. He did it right here with the the children of Israel. He'll do it again during the Great Tribulation. We'll be right there. We'll be witnessing the judgment. We're not going to be the targets of these trumpet judgments. We will be protected from those things. Okay? It's not that difficult. Now, look at what it says. He gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And look at what Joshua says. Let me back up. And then Joshua spoke to the Lord, and he said what? Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Alon. Alon, excuse me. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day, There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord did what? The Lord fought for Israel. Isn't that amazing? I don't know how the sun stood still. Chuck Missler has a great, if you want to chase that down, go go read Chuck Missler's teaching on the long day of Joshua. It's the best explanation that I've heard so far. I don't have time to go into it today. But guys, again, this was given to us as a picture and a pattern of what it's going to be like when the Lord fights for us in the day of judgment, when he's pouring out these other things upon the earth, and he's protecting and preserving his people from his judgments. Amen. That's the way that these trumpet judgments will be. Okay, so I'm going to ask our praise team to come on back up as we kind of try to put a bow on this and, and tie it all together. Let's remember, here's the one thing that we need to take away from this, past, from this, from this chapter, okay? Don't forget the purposes of the trumpets. They're designed to sound an alarm. So when, when we, and let me say this too. Some of you think that I don't believe that there is chronology in the book of Revelation. There is, there is some chronology in the book of Revelation. Don't get me wrong. Like, I know that when the first trumpet judgment happens, then what's coming next? Okay, I get this. I can know when we see these things happen that we can expect the second trumpet judgment to come next, and then the third, and then the fourth. I understand there is some chronology in the book of Revelation. I think that's why, to some extent, we'll be able to tell the world what's happening and what's going on and what to expect next. And when we do that, that gains amazing credibility with the rest of the world because they're going to be like, man, these Christian people know what's happening. They know what's going on. How do they know this stuff? Oh, we get to tell them about Jesus. Amen. That's what this is all about. And as witnesses, guys, here's the number one thing that I want you to take away from this passage. We can take comfort in knowing that God hears our prayer. Many of you out there have been praying on something for a very, very, very long time, and you're getting ready to quit and give up because you think God doesn't hear your prayer. Don't quit. Amen. Do not stop praying. Amen. He will come through. I promise you, God is faithful to answer the prayer. It may not be exactly how we want it and the timing we want it, but your prayers matter. Okay? We don't take vengeance, okay? We allow God to repay, evil, uh, repay the wicked for their evil. 
But here's the number one thing I want you to take away from this passage, guys. We are called to be his watchmen. We are called to be on the wall, to be looking out around the world, to be observant, to be paying attention, to, to, to sound the alarm and give the warning. It's kind of like Pilgrim's Progress. When Christian, if you've ever read that book, you, kids, you need to read Pilgrim's Progress in, in modern English. Don't, don't read the old English. Pilgrim's Progress, the guy Christian, he begins to understand the gravity of God's coming judgment and he goes around telling everybody he knows, you better get out and flee the wrath to come. And he's ridiculed for it. As watchmen on the wall in a generation that is perverse and wicked and evil, guess what we're going to be? Ridiculed. Ah, oh, where's the return of this Jesus? You've been talking about that mess for 2,000 years. He hadn't come yet. Guys, don't, it doesn't matter. Because at the end of the day, we're responsible to be watchmen, to sound the alarm, to call the world to repentance. And if they still really uh, refuse to believe, then that means the blood is on whose head? There. It's on their own head. Okay? But we have to be responsible too. Amen. So guys, there is a chance for the world to repent. And I pray that all of us will take up our role as his watchmen until the day that the Lord Jesus will come. So I want to pray for us, and as always, I'm going to be up here. We're going to sing one more song as we close out in worship this morning. If you need me, if you want to come pray, if you need counsel, whatever it may be, or if you just want to make sure that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that you Amen. want to be assured that you have a place in God's kingdom, come talk to me about that. Would you stand as we pray together? Father, we just want to thank you again for all your blessings, for your goodness, that even though, Lord... All of these things will come to pass at his, as it has been written. We also know that you're a gracious and a merciful God and that you do not desire any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Yes, Lord. And so, Lord, as we look out upon the world around us, Lord, help us not to be calloused and discouraged and, Lord, bitter and skeptical, Lord, but help us to see the whole lost world as you see them. Lord, as people who need you, God, if it were not for the grace of God, Lord, we would be right there with them. And so, Lord, have mercy on us. Help us to be bold. Help us to sound the alarm. Help us to preach the gospel until the day that you do come. Yes. We pray all of this today in the wonderful name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Let's all sing together as we sing.